0: Hey there and welcome back to Radio Meteor, the podcast where I watch an episode of 90s anime Gundam Wing and ramble about it because people keep talking about what happens at the end of the series but I honestly only ever watched it all the way through whilst probably drunk in the early 2000s so this is my attempt to try and regain some memory of it all. This week it's party night, I'm Odomaki and welcome to Orbit. Hi guys, here we are back in the wardrobe, in orbit, episode six, party night, or as they say in Japanese, party naito. Sometimes it really is just that simple. Last time we found out that Relina is really Rolina Peacecraft, and today it's party night. First watch through, I thought this was her birthday party, but then I remembered we've kind of already done that. So this is just an unspecified party. If anyone has picked up on the reason why they are having the shindig, uh, let me know. Either way, it looks like a fairly swish affair. I'm making a slight change to the format this week. So, up till now, I've talked about language points and then character points and then world observations. This episode, it just seems to make more sense to go through and discuss things as and when they appeared in the show and just give my general commentary on it. Mainly, it just feels like the parts of this show that I could comment on don't really fall into any particular category as easily this time around. So, I guess that's fairly typical of an episode at this stage of the narrative. It's building up to things, but at the same time it's still relatively fragmented. And because of that, I'm also not going to give an overview of the episode. The episode opens with Relina returning to her school, and we get an aerial view of the actual building and get an idea of the size and scale of it again. And I mentioned last episode how the colony architecture doesn't have any of this old world heritage. Well, this place has it in buckets. Uh, It's very European. It's very old fashioned. It looks kind of like French, German, Swiss, this sort of massive chateau. And I would kind of like to see McMansion Judge Relina's school. Uh, It's swank, but it's also got so many nubbin roofs. And it looks like there's a carp pond in the back garden as well. So you know, you know, you're wealthy if your school has a carp pond. Go ahead and ask me about the history of carp ponds. I dare you. Uh, she gets inside and she's greeted by Mrs. Darlian. I've talked about her on Tumblr before, but what a neglected character. Uh, you know, drink her in because it's basically all you're going to see of her. And I distinctly remember watching this first time round, and I just did not identify her as Melina's mother in any capacity whatsoever. I mean, she's dressed in mourning, but she's also dressed kind of like a Victorian maid. So I pretty much just assumed first time I saw her that she was Melina's maid or something. And I'm wondering if that is deliberate, because in Japanese, Rolina enters the room and she says, "Tadaima kaidimasu." She, "Tadaima" is just this stock phrase that you say when you re-enter your home, and kaerimashita means "I have come back." Um, so she doesn't actually say the word "mother" or, or anything of, the, of that nature, despite the fact that it is put into the English subtitles. So oh, that's different. They have a bit of a conversation, and Rolina apologizes for not being to save her father. So. This, again, is a kind of crucial part of her character, that she does take responsibility for things that really she has no business assuming responsibility for, because she can't assume responsibility for what has happened. We get these non-verbal glimpses of what her life with Mr and Mrs Dalian was like. There's a cute photo of them on her desk, and in it she's sitting in Mr Darlian's lap. It's this little cute daddy-daughter moment. And Mrs. Darlene sort of stood in the background a little rigidly. And just looking at it, it, you kind of wonder whether or not she has as close a relationship with Mrs. Darlene in the capacity of her her mother as as much as she did with her father. I feel like there's a bigger disparity there. Um, and it also makes you wonder a little bit about Mr. and Mrs. Darlene's relationship as well. Like, they appear to be married, but was it more of a case of they got married because of circumstance and because of the need to keep this child who they had some kind of duty to safe, um, did it develop and then they decided to just stick with it even though the initial feelings had died, it's, it's very vague and I feel like there's a lot you could really plumb into there if you had a, had a mind to you know. and there's also this question of who was Mrs Darlian before she was Mrs Darlian was she also a member of the, the Sank civil service or like did she have some role there as well Mrs. Darlian starts asking if Relina knows that she is Relina Peacecraft and Relina lies first of all. She she says that her father didn't tell her anything and then almost immediately Mrs. Darlian is like okay then we need to talk because there's something that I, I need to reveal to you at this time and Relina doesn't want to hear it so I said at the end of the last episode she had gone back into this identity that she had or that she'd originally had as her safe space and that she was just not ready to let go of that and It's really quite heartbreaking this tiny little segment that then is very rapidly moved away from in the narrative that she She flings her arms around this woman and says And in the English that's translated as You'll always be my mother in the Japanese. It's slightly different. It's zuto is going forward and forever like always a more reverential way to address your mother is let me call you mother effectively so it's like let me always call you mother so she's really appealing to this woman to not take this away from her to not shatter completely everything that she understands and knows about the world because it's just too much she could give up her identity in terms of being privileged she could join in this rebellion, but she's not ready to give up her family. She's still quite protective, and that is a part of her that gets developed continuously, I think, as the series goes forward. But you know, that's just my opinion right at this second in time. As I watch further episodes, I'll probably redact that. We'll see. We'll see. Next, we jump over to Lady Un and Trez. Lady Eun is talking about going after Rolina. Relina knows too much. She's got to be hushed up. And the plot thickens in that we see Un prepping to step into the diplomatic void that she's created. Uh, so the assassination that she's undertaken has several outcomes in Oz's favour. They get rid of one of their prime rivals who is onto them and could mess up their plans. But they also create confusion in the colonies that undermines the political power there. They have a chance to go in And as we see in later episodes they set up this swing in the power balance to to seize control we have trays knocking around with his tweety pie birds in a cage and he lets them go and it's very symbolic i couldn't quite decide what metaphor that was supposed to portray Uh, i had a few thoughts about it which i'll come back to further on down the line but we see Trey's giving Un orders. He offers her five mobile suits for what is effectively just an attack on a civilian school. And she's like, oh, that's quite a bit. And he says, with a kind of wink and a nod, oh, well, you never know where you might encounter the enemy. Which makes me think that Trey's is up to some fishy shit because they, at that stage, didn't know that Hero was parked there. Or if they did, then Trey's knows, but he hasn't told Un uh she definitely doesn't know that. Uh so we spin right over to Hiro uh who is preparing to leave the school and he is busy standing at the window being a massive misanthrope sneering at these normal kids having fun excited for a party in their party frocks and uh he says are you wa night which in English is translated to it doesn't concern me or it has nothing to do with me. But I feel like the sentiment that it would be better translated as is just a big, fat, whatever. And I I think maybe this is kind of Hiro's tatamae. Like, he really pretends he doesn't care and that he's unfeeling, that he's Mr. Mission and he's Mr. Gundam Pilot. Um, But he has all of these emotions and he has all these interests and thoughts and, again, these witticisms that are kept below the surface and keep bubbling up. You know, the cracks were there before he even landed on earth and Rulina is the wedge that just keeps battering away at them because she can see it she can see that he's not entirely what he thinks he is but I don't think she realizes that she sees this uh, she's as far as she's concerned she's taking him at face value but it's not the face value that he expects people to pick up on or that other people do pick up on you know and and that is clear when Relina goes to confront him at the school and at this point she has got even less time for his drama than she has had at any other point point. she surprises him and then she's very fast to jump on that weakness she's like oh so even you can be surprised and she mocks him for it and I kind of feel for Hero a little bit like boy he gets played like a fiddle by Rolina in this scene she goes in and this time she uses her charm and she is polite to him but she uses it as a weapon and She tells him that they're on the same side. And she basically tells him to stop being emo and to come down and at least enjoy the party while he has time. And it's an interesting philosophy that she pulls out of the bag here. That, yes, we're going to war, but if we have an opportunity to be human, we should take it. I think that's kind of the crux of the matter in that scene there of what Merlina's message is. And then his message is that he can't afford to do that. So that's the first half of the episode you know, cue big giant head moment. Meanwhile, we are still calling around the houses of what all the other pilots are up to. aside from the main plot of Hiro and Radina and their emotion, they refuse to let you forget that these characters exist and they're doing stuff. You could very easily have ignored these guys. They're not really doing a huge amount at this stage, but it keeps giving you these flashes, episode after episode, of, of these guys exist. They're doing this stuff. Remember their hair, and at the same time, it's. I've talked a lot in the first episode about how this isn't a traditional ensemble anime. There's still not this push to go around and collect the ball up and. We're all going to work together, and that's the goal and the separation is an issue that has to be overcome and it 's kind of a question of why do they keep doing this? Why not just forget these guys are there and focus on the main thread of the action and then bring it in later because they're not really foreshadowing a huge amount either. I wonder if it is to do with the fact that this whole anime was commissioned to sell five new toys effectively and it had to be five new Gundam designs and I guess that could be the reason why this is so as it is. Uh there's just a sort of a commercial push to organize it that way. Anyway, we we get a nod to Wafa, he's still alive. Uh meanwhile Troa is still being a little bitch. Just from the point of view of his employer, this kid turned up, got the job just about, then he vanishes for several days, then he rocks back up and is late for work, and then he just gives a load of sass if this was any employment situation other than a circus where Troa has exhibited a few very useful and very niche skills, you get the feeling he would be kicked out on his rear pretty quickly. We get this scene with Troa being the target for Catherine's knife-throwing act and she refers to him as Oningyo-san jokingly and then it fades to black and she realises actually she's unwittingly put her finger right on the button of the situation and The sort of the emo intensifies and she realizes he's a mess like he is a proper deep down in the doldrums mess and it throws her enough that she accidentally nicks him with the knife but equally Catherine's super perky um I really like Catherine and she's a lot less naggy and a lot less older sister-y than I remember her being or that I I seem to recall her being characterized as in in fandom we get another nice little language point here he reminds her of kemono uh, which in the English is translated as beast, now I've talked about beasts before but that was kaibutsu and this is kemono, and kemono is beast as in lions, tigers and bears, oh my, it's about animals or brute animals, and she compares him to something like a wild animal so not terribly sophisticated but perhaps if we go for like the most flattering version of it he's inspiring i don't know i don't really know what to make of that sentence he's kind of basic It's maybe what she's saying there but not in a like yeah basic kind of way she also says oh if you smiled more you'd be cute which cracks me up just based on how modern discourse goes about you know cat calling and everything um, the fact that we have a female character telling a boy like oh you know what you'd be so much cuter if you smiled just kind of blows my mind slightly sorry that was my radiator just having a wee um, she also says moto ga I, which i'm kind of question mark over the english subtitles translate that as you're quite good looking you know but moto i can't find exactly which character that is um i have it in my back of my head that it's karada as in body like you have a good form Which I guess you can translate as, you're good looking, but it can also mean like, maybe like in good condition? I don't know, this one I'm a bit baffled on. Uh, If I figure it out, I'll come back to it. Um, This one would have been helpful if I could have seen the actual Japanese subtitles, but I've still not figured out a way to get those working. Anyway, that's two dots, so we check in with Wufei and we check in with Troa and then it jumps back to Hiro. Um, who is staring at Relina like he does not know what to make of her. Um, At this stage, she declares an alliance uh, that she is on his side and that she's fighting the same good fight that he's fighting, despite the fact they haven't discussed exactly what he's doing one-to-one. She's spoken to Dr. J, he's given her his version of events, but she hasn't gotten from Hero exactly what he understands about the situation, which I think even now is starting to change from Dr. J's view of things. And she makes this sort of statement of resolution that she's committed to this fight she's keeping some things in her pocket she's keeping her dalian identity she's keeping her family which is fair enough but she's also putting her cards on the table a little bit and it it does surprise him next scene uh is arriving and she is very much set up as the undeniable Bad guy here, um so Zex is kind of a bit questionable. he's got some sympathy given to him in the narrative, so is Noin, very much so Noin uh trays he just kind of flaffs about making metaphors. We're not really sure about him yet, but lady Un is a an antagonist you can sink your teeth into, like she's very clearly the baddie, even her soldiers think that she's cuckoo, but you know we can't have sympathy for this guy who questions her orders anyway because he's a worm who caves to his job uh and then he's dead. Also, are you telling me that Wing Zero was sunbathing next to the school all this time and nobody noticed? I call Baloney. There would have been a groundskeeper or something who would have stumbled upon that. And I can't also help but think that Eun has terrible plans. I mean, she has decided that she needs to get rid of Rolina. Fair enough, okay? Putting my baddie hat on. I can see how that makes sense. We need to shut this kid up. But this is not the most subtle approach. She literally flies into a boarding school with an aircraft carrier and five mobile suits to attack a civilian party that is totally unarmed, as far as she is aware. And her sole reason for doing this is that people will think that the colonies are attacking. Why would the colonies attack a school? Out of all of the possible targets on Earth, how is that one the most believable? And she's actually probably very damn lucky that Hero actually does crop up, because then they could be like, oh yeah, a Gundam was there, so we had to attack anyway then the episode decides we've had enough of uh, actual plot and we uh, we skip over to catra and he is chilling at his desk a la spider-man in a very very empty room like just a depressingly empty office playing battleship and having some tea and pondering and uh he's sitting there like oh more gundams hmm gotta catch them all and then we leave him meanwhile howard's getting pissed he's having a drinking party you know big mood Juo is moonbathing? I don't know. He's having a good chill. They're celebrating having finished fixing his Gundam, but rather than rushing off to find his mission or, or carry on whatever it is he's supposed to be doing, they're having a little break. If you have any questions about if how it is actually genuinely getting pissed and what he's drinking, when he responds to Juo saying, the moon looks so much better from Earth, he says, in English, uh, you bet, it's a beauty. Um, in Japanese, he says, Sukimi zaki to yunda. is moon viewing. It's a uh, traditional autumnal activity, usually on the October full moon. You go out and look at it because it's big and it's beautiful. And then zake is booze. So tsukimi zake is booze that you drink while looking at the moon. And uh, it's typically sake, Japanese rice wine or, or shochu, which is like a rougher version of sake. So yeah, he says tsukimi zake to yunda. It's like, that's why they call it moon viewing booze. And, uh, you know, classic Mike Howard. Love it. Joe makes this comment in the scene about the moon which I think reflects back quite nicely on that scene in the previous episode where Miss Darling tells Relina to look at the earth and remember how beautiful it is. So Joe is talking about how beautiful the moon is and he says from L2, from the colonies, it looks like a graveyard. They were just kind of too close for it. So there's this again, this theme that there's this lost appreciation for the heavens. Um, there's this lost perspective of how beautiful the natural world is and humanity can be and he's also lying there thinking about hero and this is probably the scene that launched a thousand ships uh it's cute i also really think that duo likes people who can punk him you know it rustles his jimmies in a good way when somebody manages to yank his chain and get one over him and make him laugh then the episode decides that's too chill and we jump straight back to the action and we've got Hero still fighting Lady Un's mobile suit soldiers and it demonstrates how good Hero is as a pilot as well um he knows very much the capabilities of his enemy and when the mobile suit soldiers try to pull up uh he gets quite angry he sort of shouts at them you're too heavy and then he blows them up um but he's a little bit like Fei in this reflect in that he's annoyed that his enemy is so poorly prepared or, or bad at doing what they're supposed to be doing at being a worthwhile enemy in some respects. Relina quickly moves to protect some of her peers uh, and then tells them that they need to run and these girls are really quick to bail. They don't question her, they're out of there. And we get another instance of hero targeting somebody So he kind of zooms in on Relina with his targeting system. He's not actually targeting to fire, but he turns to almost attack and then he protects. So this is similar to what he does with Duo when he is teasing Duo. But this time it's not a game and he's genuinely performing an action to preserve her. And then he genuinely questions himself as to why he does it. This is the game changer he had not planned to do this it completely changes how he operates following on from this and he's super pissed off about it just as he did before when she yelled dame and then he didn't allow himself to smush onto the rocks on the beach he asks himself again and his again why am i doing this why can't i kill her why am i hesitating and she's really really gotten under his skin and I think he's suddenly realized on a deeper level than he intended to that she could represent a third option to all of the options he's got uh, in the same way that in later episodes Catherine does that for Troa. It gets into the crunch and then dares ex machina trays telephones un, and calls her off and it's a bit puzzling at first but then we get into his office and we learn that uh, Noin has actually telephoned to beg for clemency for Alina on Zex's behalf. Zex wouldn't do it himself, you know ass, but she has taken it upon herself to do this and it's questionable at this stage as to how much contact she has ever had with Trey's. I mean he is her superior, superior superior in fact, but she goes out of her way to do this even though that this is wider plot to blame this attack on the colonies and further undermine their status within the Earth Sphere Alliance. And then Trey's sort of floats around being more metaphorical and the birds come back. And again, I'm not sure what metaphor this is supposed to represent, but I did wonder if it was maybe that the birds were Zex and Relina, and he was on the verge of throwing them away as pieces in his game. So Zex is Trez's protege, as we've discussed. He's been moulded and created and, and used by Trey's, but perhaps at this stage, Trey's was thinking, maybe I don't need him anymore. Maybe he's not important enough for me to have this consideration of not killing his sister. Or it could even be a more manipulative situation where it's a bait and switch. So he's threatening Relina and then shows his clemency in order to pull Zex back into line or make sure that Zex does toe the line because presumably Trace has always known who Relina was and where she was. He could have taken her out of the game virtually anytime he wanted. So Trace is definitely playing a long game here and he's playing everybody against each other. There was a, a book about a mouse called Pentecost I don't know if anybody remembers this one, but in it there was a seven-legged insect. Its entire role was it played both ends against the middle, it manipulated everybody to serve its own purpose, and then it never really explained what it was doing and it flew away. So Trez is kind of a seven-legged bug here, that's what I'm going to refer to him as until I get further into more episodes and I understand perhaps maybe more about what he's doing. But I have to admit I have never ever ever understood Trez as a character, not once. Maybe this time, but until then, seven-legged bug. The final scene then, and we have Rulina and Hiro in this bizarre showdown. And this is another one I struggle to get my head around. She keeps demanding him to kill her and this is something that everyone kind of likes to make fun of it's very memeable it's another of those episode scenes that tries to take itself very seriously but it just ends up kind of ridiculous because it's just so over the top very hammy a hero is like why can't i kill her and she's like just kill me and then he can't and it's it just goes on and on but trying to figure out what is going through their heads here like hero i think is a bit more simple He just has got this situation where he he actually can't bring himself to kill her because he doesn't see her fully as an enemy. Relina's motivations are less transparent, but I think it boils down to the fact that she just wants to know if he would do it. She doesn't really seem to believe that he's capable of it, of looking a civilian, someone like her, right in the eye and then murdering them in cold blood. And although he's a soldier and he does kill... That is quite a different scenario to an opponent in war. I mean, again, we reflect back to Fei and how he treats Noin. He says, you know, I don't kill bleeding hearts or women. I don't kill people who are not my enemy. Marlene is quite jaded. She knows that the world is terrible. And I think this is a situation that she wants proof that it's not actually as bad as it seems. That whatever else she's seen in the world, the violence, the fact that her father was assassinated, that the world is horribly dangerous that the irredeemability of the world is not yet fact. So she wanted to prove that he would threaten her but then put the gun down because he was too human to do it. And it might be, you know, Relina doesn't seem to value her own life very much any more than he does. So perhaps it's Kit's situation that if he doesn't put the gun down, if he followed through on his threat then she would not have been leaving a world worth living in anyway. This is a defiance of a world that was being forged out of war. So this is a, a world that is a conflict, deep conflict, and has been for a very long time. It's a world that makes child soldiers and makes children's lives into tools or just collateral. you know. And from there, her character goes on to be this push to prove that someone, a civilian, could make a difference, could find a peace without a weapon in her hand. It's the question she poses to Dr J. Surely there's another way these are the kind of the thoughts that are conflicted in her head so that's pretty much it for episode 6 overall I'm not really sure what to make of this episode eh. similar to previous episodes it jumps around a lot but it is building up to something and we get now very much the baseline is established for the whole Merlina hero conversation that's going to be taken forward. Please let me know if you have any thoughts or comments or suggestions. You can always find me at lemontrash.tumblr.com or on the Radio Meteor website where you may have heard this. I hope you enjoyed this. I hope you found it interesting. I am Odamaki, and I will see you in orbit next time. Bye!